Welcome to Japan on Fire 26 on Hideo Gosha's Hitokiri. For our second episode in this series about that very director, we stay in samurai territory, watching you know, his often intense, downbeat, dirty, grimy violence and uh, voice uh, being shaped even more. Uh, with focus on 1969's Hitokiro, we also... Hitokiri... We also track progress via quick reviews of the works in the wake of Gosha's debut, Free Outlaw Samurai. And uh, those quick takes will be revealed in a little bit. And uh, my name is Kennedy, and with me is V Cinema's Coffin John to continue the series. So good morning, buddy. Good morning. Just sitting here on a rainy morning, enjoying my Pepper Jack Cheez-Its and uh, Samurai films, I guess, huh? Not getting paid <laughs> or endorsed for future shows by... By whoever those people are. Yeah, it seems like I'm never getting paid, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I, I like to eat I like to drive expensive cars and wear and, and and wear expensive watches while I record my samurai podcasts. Anyone? Uh but uh, no no indeed. It's a it's a free work, but uh an indeed layered nuanced work, hopefully diving uh, deep into the filmography of uh, our uh, Japanese director here. So uh And it's a lot of fun too. Sure, sure. A lot of it is new, new for me. How how much is like uh, so, so far has been like uh, new viewings for you, or, or uh, these are all rewatches so far? These samurai ones. Some have been new. Some have been, you know. I mean, I've I've watched a couple of Gosha's films before. I, uh, the samurai ones that, like for example, like the ones that uh, the ones we're doing today, I, I'd I'd only seen one of them. You know, that was something, and you know, it's not like they weren't available. It's just that you know they're just like everyone else is just sitting in my collection just waiting to be watched but just other watching priorities take over so those things kind of you know got lost in the shuffle so to speak doing it for work is still in its own way fun i hope rather than just uh like uh making notes and the next viewing will be the fun viewing i hope it's uh i hope it's not that but it's certainly a different thing doing something for work and just watching it for for enjoyment at least i um at least that's my experience uh, sometimes Right, yeah. Let's get going then. First of all, some quick contact information. This is Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. Our website is located on podcastonfire.com and the show is dealing in Japanese cinema, naturally, but we have other shows on Hong Kong cinema, Korean cinema, sleazy Hong Kong cinema, and uh, stupid ninja cinema, and what have you. And we also do bonus episodes exclusive to the website every now and again. Email us if you have any questions or feedback or any impressions of uh, Gosha that you want to share with us. Our email is podcastonfire at googlemail.com. And if you follow the handy colorful buttons at the top of our page, uh, that will lead you to our Facebook page and group, as well as to our Twitter account, and also to our iTunes feed, which you can subscribe to, leave a star rating on, and even leave a comment on. We would love to hear from you. And also, finally, there's a button leading to our Stitcher radio presence, where you can stream the shows on the network, including Japan on Fire. And you can also do that via the free app available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. I write about uh, mainly Hong Kong and Taiwanese genre movies, uh, sleazy, violent, uh, and crappy, and a lot of other genres in between at SoGoodReviews.com. And my video hub is SleazyKVideo.com, where I post small spoken audio video reviews of uh, the main reviews, as I call them, the longer reviews. Uh, so that's SleazyKVideo.com, and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. 
and you don't, people may know it, but still give give the people uh, a sort of uh, slight uh, taste of what what goes on on the blog The Cinema. Former podcast, The Cinema, now active blog. It's always been an active blog, though. Yeah, we're located at vcinemashow.com, and uh, the show is S-H-O-W, of course. And we cover Asian cinema, all regions, all genres, all, all the time. of life. Yeah, all the time. Well, not all the time, but most of the time. <laughs> but uh, we're also located on Facebook. Uh, the Facebook page is kind of more of a news aggregator, uh, more so than um, than you know just covering our blog. So, you know, if you're just interested in uh, um, Asian cinema or Asian culture in general, you might want to follow the Facebook page because we post a bunch of stuff from other sites that kind of interest us. One thing about our blog that I really wanted to um, mention is that. Uh, we just recently got a contributor who has been contributing video essays, kind of like in the vein of, uh, I think, if you're a film fan and if you're on YouTube a lot, you probably know the uh, the guy who does uh, every frame of painting. Uh, I forget his name. I think his name is Tony, if I remember correctly. But um, we have a uh, contributor. Uh, her name is, uh, I believe she's a doctor. So I'm going to say Dr. Rowena uh, Aquino. She is based in Los Angeles, and she's a, a lecturer at um, I forget which university exactly, but um, but anyway, uh, so she's been doing um, some video essays for us. Uh, she's done two of them so far. Both of them are outstanding. With a focus on what specifically, uh, Japanese cinema or any kind of cinema? Well, so far the two that she's posted have been on Hong Kong cinema. One is on uh, dance in uh, Wong Kar Wai's films, and then the other one is uh, on uh, Johnny Toe's uh, Shadow Play. All right, all right. A little PTU, um, P- PTU springs to mind. Uh, longest night and stuff like that. Cool, cool. Exactly. So again, they're a little more academically bent, so they, they might be a little um, tough to get through. Uh, as far as like, if you just want to see like you know some fast takes on films, it's probably not the best thing. But I will say that they are very interesting. If you really want to, if you're really the kind of person who wants to dig deep into uh, these sort of aspects of film. Uh, I, I really appreciate the that kind of contribution because um, as movie people, you know, we're all a little more visually oriented. So sure. we like to see things in, in motion rather than, you know, when we read a re- review, we have to sort of assemble things in our head to see if what exactly the author is talking about. Whereas, you know, video essays, you know, so things are a little more right in front of you so you can sort of, uh, you know, capture those um, the, the uh, sorts of um, – comments and uh critiques that the author is uh or the videographer in this case is trying to uh, portray to you you know which is automatic more uh automatically actually more admirable to uh, go you know not only conjure up your thoughts or write your thoughts but uh, you are doing an audio video presentation as well like extra work so and and, and that kind of voice that you're describing is uh is more than welcome. It's it's certain. It's certainly not uh, in this day and age. We're living in, as you and I have talked of so much. We're living in the era of uh, internet critique, and uh, especially clickbait style internet critique. You know, ten things that are wrong with Batman and Superman and stuff like that. You know, you you get Only so ten. bogged down. I, I don't know. I've not seen it. No interest in it either. Uh, you know, we get so bogged down in that. So this uh, this angle to it all is uh, more than welcome in my book. Yeah, I agree. So there is. Uh, have you finished your uh, ten, 10 Things Wrong with Batman Superman article yet? No, I'm just kidding. 
Well, the first one is that I just don't want to see it. So, uh, it's just not like it's just not my wheelhouse, right? So, yeah, exactly. No, mine either. I uh, grew up on a little bit of superhero movies, uh, but uh, not uh, not my kind of uh, not my kind of movie anymore. I like uh, crappier stuff. You all know that, of course. Yeah, just give me uh, Super Inframan any day, you know. Oh God, yes. <laughs> I, I I keep forgetting about doing that damn movie, but I, I'm also kind of afraid of not doing it justice uh, on podcast on fire. But I'm I'm so in awe of uh, Super Inframan or Inframan for short. It's just a good damn time. Yeah, well, you know, um, recently it played on the big screen here in San Francisco. I was really bummed that I couldn't go see it. I think it was on it was on a really weird day, like a Tuesday night or something, and I'm like. Tuesday night, come on. I mean, yeah, that's great if I live like within a mile of that cinema, but man, it's, I, can't, I mean, I would have to drive like, you know, like 60 miles just to get there. I don't know if that's worth it, really, you know? No, I mean, the, the experience at home is still awesome for, for Inframan, so, um, so, yeah. so, so you still have that. So, uh, But regardless, let's uh, get this thing going. I'm going to give you a rundown of what's to come, listeners, uh, because we have a few sections, so uh, you'll get a heads up of uh, what's to come, and you can also jump ahead to any section we are presenting in this episode uh, if you follow the uh, running times I post in the show notes. Um, they should also turn up when you download the podcast via if, for instance, the Apple Podcast app, uh, or but, but probably in other podcast applications on other devices as well. But first, we'll do another slice of uh, Gosha's biography to let you know what was happening around at uh, this time in his career when Hitokiri was made, and a few years before as well. And we then do the quick takes, uh, quick reviews of his movies Sword of the Beast and Goyokin. Is that how you pronounce it, in essence? Yeah, the accent would be a little different, like Goyokin. Goyokin. And uh, after that, uh, there will be a biography and I'm sure a little bit of a, of a discussion on uh, Shinta, uh, actor Shintaro Katsu, followed by our main review and discussion of Hitokiri that stars, uh, stars that very uh, very man, Katsu. So uh, let's get going. Uh, Hideo, Gosha's, uh, Hideo Gosha's biography, the story continues essentially because we've decided to do it uh, in pieces, this biography, as we... Uh, continue this uh, series. So when we last left him, he had been dubbed one of Fuji TV's star directors and in the last episode I didn't do the research to check which were the star directors. <laughs> so apparently they were, together with Gosha Taro Okada and Tokihisa Morikawa. And I might as well stop you there. Do, do these names uh, ring at a bell for, for you, John? I know the names, but I don't know any of their work. And they, who, who knows if they branched out in, uh, in movies? You, you never know. Uh, but uh, he had anyway taken the TV show Free Outlaw Samurai to the big screen, and he was reportedly somewhat of a hit anyway, and uh, Gosha was now a sought-after movie director. He made further movies for the studio Shochiko, such as Sword of the Beast, but uh, for other studios as well, Toho, Toei, and Daei as well, resulting in movies uh, that we've discussed, such as Samurai Wolf 1 and 2 for Toei, The Secret of the Urn, and uh, Hitokiri. While I was uh, researching uh, Hideo Gosha, you know, Ken, I was sort of thinking myself, actually what I was doing is, uh, you know, I was looking at, uh, you know, after watching the films that um, we were watching for this episode as well as the first episode, you know, I noticed that there were a lot of common actors that he was using, you know, people like, um, for example, Tetsuro Tamba, who um, who we saw in the Three Outlaw Samurai and we'll see later in, uh, or we might see later, depending on... Um, whether we choose uh, uh, the film or not, uh, in um, some of uh, Gosha's other films, as well as um, 
uh, Mikijiro Hira, who is the protagonist in uh, one of the protagonists, excuse me, in Three Outlaw Samurai, as well as the protagonist in Sword of the Beast, as well as uh, Tatsu uh, Nakadai, who we um, are going to be talking about a little later. So usually when you have a director who's working with a certain group of people, a very kind of narrow, defined group of people, it's either because they get along very well or it's because the crew can stand their director. In other words, and you can probably figure out what I'm getting at is that, uh, and I did some research that it turns out that Gauchel was actually a very difficult director to get, to get along with on set. Very demanding and very, uh, in some ways, very critical, very gruff. And it was the case that he did fire a lot of uh, crew, um, sometimes mid-shooting. Mid Throwing tantrums and crap like that? No, just because he felt their work wasn't good. I don't think most Japanese directors probably are not the types that throw fits just to say, like, basically, hey, this sucks. Get out of here. That kind of thing. It's kind of strict. I was actually um, watching an interview with his daughter, who, uh, if I remember correctly, is a film critic, which he, he really hated, apparently, <laughs> that she became a film critic. But, uh, you know, she was actually talking about, you know, how he could be a bit tyrannical on the set and, you know, kind of a jerk and hard to get along with and apparently i guess it's you know the case that you know he these were kind of this loose group of people that he could work with because they could tolerate him and and essentially you know get along with him and he could get along with them and whatnot so so that that's something that uh, that's kind of interesting that might actually uh, end up coloring a little bit of um our looks at um, these films as well as uh, later films in his uh, filmography yeah, you know, you never know with the moods on screen how that corresponds to how a worker's uh, disposition and mood is on set. Uh, because mm -hmm. so sometimes if you make dark and grimy, gritty, violent stuff, maybe you have more fun creating that on set. You never know how these things go. I sometimes wonder with certain Hong Kong movies, the more extreme ones, you know, how it was on set. And unfortunately, some of these both actors and filmmakers, they are totally off the grid, so you'll probably never know how it was making these, um, especially these Category 3 movies in, in the 90s. Uh, so it, it is quite a fascinating aspect to me as well, well, what's behind that anger, if there is anger on screen. So Yeah, it's always kind of interesting to think about, you know, how much that uh, cast and crew personal relationships feed into, you know, their professional product you know which is essentially their film and and throughout the decades some um, if a director works several decades their attitude changes and they may become a bit more looser as they grow older i mean uh, it, it's a completely different uh, beast here but uh, i know kevin smith has said like in the beginning of his career like the script was the bible and you couldn't veer away from that even a syllable and nowadays it's more about have fun, try stuff, you know, you know, entertain me a little bit. Like, you have freedom to, to play a little bit. So uh, sometimes things uh, do change. So, indeed, we'll, uh, we'll see what happens as we go through the Gosha filmography in terms of uh, if the anger will still be there in the 80s or what have you. So Actually, frustration on another project due to a limited creative freedom given to him led to, um, you know, the mentioned Samurai Wolf movies that we discussed. They are quite appreciated, um, even if they weren't at the time. They're, they're, they're still considered, uh, at least the first one, uh, you know, de decently acclaimed and all of that. Uh, so, uh, you know, as much as those movies and, for instance, like Secret of the Urn are single out when talking of him, they, they did frustrate him as they were not, 
you know, critical or commercial hits in the end either. So, uh, but but he felt he needed to evolve and uh, and grow, and that, that, that's where Gorkin and 1969's Hitokiri comes in. They were both made or released that year, and uh, Gorkin was noted for being a darker version of. Sanjuro, which is a movie I haven't seen, but thank God that's not a rare Japanese movie, right? You can pick right. it up at any damn time. So I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not down the Kurosawa filmography uh, that extensively yet, anyway. But uh, it's noted for being a darker version of that, and it was also actually remade, uh, reportedly in 1975 in the U.S. as the Master Gunfighter. And you, you, you gave me some um, private message notes on that. Uh, you just scanned through it a little bit. Uh, what, what was the spontaneous impression that Western gave you? Because I assume it's a, a Western, right? Yeah, right. And um, this is a Western that starred um, Tom Laughlin, who's uh, also known as uh, Billy Jack. And also starred uh, Ron O'Neill, who's also known as Superfly, um, as well as other uh, mostly character actors. And um, it's a real weird mix of you could see that there is some I mean, certainly some of the shots are like they almost feel like they're like shot by shot copies in a way, you know, I mean, like I guess one scene of a particular note that you might remember from um, Goyo King is um, the shot where um, uh, Tatsuya Nakodai's character is first introduced and as like a master swordsman mm-hmm. and it's at sort of like a, a festival at sorts and yeah, these, yeah. and these uh, guys come up and they say like you know we want to see the master swordsman and he comes out and he shows his skill by cutting a fish in a woman's lap which is really in itself kind of an odd sequence but um they uh reshoot that in the master gunfighter it's even odder because it's just like it's this guy you know, um, Tom Laughlin's character, he is a master of both, you know, sword and a gun. So it's it's just a really weird mix. And um, I don't know from I only watched like the first half of it and it just didn't um, didn't feel right. Didn't have the same drive that uh, Goyo Kina has. So, yeah, you you never hear about it, really. So I don't think it's a major classic of the genre. Rightfully so. I guess you don't hear about it too much because uh, I would guess that it's not all that great i'll i'll may watch the rest of it one day but um yeah that's not something uh, i don't think i'll pursue i did like the soundtrack though and of course soundtrack is um by the great uh, lalo schifrin so but uh, what the uh, Kane features is an aging sam- samurai haunted by memories of death and slaughter and it has led to speculation that gosha might have been reflecting on current wartime stories and atrocities and i say current i mean only 20 years earlier 30 years earlier and what have you he did say about the movie that he'd reached his limits as director and he wanted to renew his inspiration. And uh, I guess that leads us sort of talking uh, specifically about uh, Hitokiri, which was the first, or rather the sole, well, first and sole Gosha movie I've seen prior to the series. And uh, it was a film that seemed to be akin to the stars aligning creatively, at least in my book. Uh, it had a script penned by uh, Rashomon's Shinobu Hashimoto, he was working for the studio Daiei that brought you that said movie and the classic ghost story Ugetsu, which I really love. I saw that, that that was one of the few times we had Japanese, old Japanese movies on Swedish TV. They had a little f- festival and they picked uh, Ugetsu. And I, I, uh, I really still adore that movie. I think it's... Uh, oh, that was on TV. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I don't think, yeah. I don't think it's ever been on TV in, in the US. Yeah, they picked a little a little, little, section of Japanese movies for four weeks or what have you. Like one a week rather than 
one a day, but uh, still I remember that movie being quite uh, quite excited by it, and uh, and it is indeed a Criterion title as well, so it's easy to own that movie. And, uh, you know, last but not uh, least, in terms of Hitokiri, he scored uh, The Blind Swordsman himself, Satoichi Shintaro Katsu, uh, for the lead role in Hitokiri, which was said to be pressure for someone like Gosha with no proper movie background in uh, in the film to, to go into a production with so many so much technical and acting skill and what have you but the movie is uh, in my opinion rightly considered quite breathtaking and a classic today uh, because of uh, the man behind uh, you know the camera he's uh, steering this uh, vision quite well but uh, we'll we'll get into it uh, in more detail but the studio behind it though Dae was in a decline and uh, there was maybe some hopes of seeing Hitokiri restore its finances but uh, that uh, promise was not uh, met and they actually collapsed two years later I don't know how commercial Hitokiri would have felt in 1969 but uh, regardless uh, Dae collapsed uh, two years later and the Gosha might may not have gotten wide critical notices but he still felt personally according to um, that uh, piece on Midnight Eye that we that we reference in this biography he felt he'd proven that he'd taken steps as a filmmaker mixing beautiful photography a frenzied style a drama and produ- production values so Hitokiri in his book um marked a a step forward rather than backwards and that's where we end the biography for now um, and they will continue next episode and they will swiftly move into the quick reviews that we promised we we were gonna give you and uh, the first one is of sword of the beast his second movie uh, and uh, year after free outlaw samurai i think 1965 but i'll throw it over to you john Uh, what do you want to say um for the quick take of Sword of the Beast. Well, as I mentioned, Sword of the Beast was one of the films that I had actually seen uh, prior to us uh, starting to record this series. And um, I've always thought it was a good film. Not not great. I mean, I do like the photography in it. You know, I do like the, the black and white uh, photography in it. Uh, particularly, I, I guess I could say, um, I think it's black and white photography. I think it's great uh, for samurai film because, you know, you need a certain amount of contrast and you can focus a lot more on the action, you know. So I will, yeah, I'll just say that I think it's a good film. I think that it really sort of emphasizes the one of the weaknesses of Gosha's films is that the characters are not particularly multidimensional. Uh, they're very, um, they almost feel like, in a way, close to stereotypes. I don't want to say stereotypes so much as, you know, types, character types, in that, you know, they don't really change very much in some ways. There's some realization and there's some change as far as, like, their reaction to what's happening to them, but there's no real, like, it doesn't feel like there's any real changes, like human beings, you know? And that's sort of what leads to, I think this is probably a theme, you know, we've already talked about Gosha being a kind of violent, gritty director. And I think uh, one more theme that we could add to that from at least watching uh, Sword of the Beast is that uh, at least the films that we've watched up to now are kind of nihilistic. Things are not going to change. Too bad. You know, that kind of uh, feel to it. So I think Sword of the Beast falls along with that. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later. So 
But what's your quick take, Ken? It's good, but not great. <laughs> if we really give you brief, I mean, it's a, it's an entertaining scenario, I suppose, of uh, you know shattered illusions of what it's like being a minion in a clan. Uh, you know, uh, our main character breaks free and uh, wants to become a beast because a beast is free. You know, <laughs> and all of that. But but it's not a deep examination of greed and morals. I think it's more of a springboard for a short and sweet time. You know, interesting, but not you know fairly impactful but but it has decent grit and performances and that those bursts of action that's part of his style you know but just because it's black and white and grand and uh, widescreen it doesn't mean that this is you know an epic grand time it's because it's really centered around you know very few locations but and it's a small story and i knew they shot widescreen anyway for for uh, these movies at the time but it's not something you gotta see on a big screen because it's so big you know it, it it's quite uh quite a small and easy to get into kind of story and 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 fairly compelling but it's not the uh, you know the example of him as a filmmaker that i would show people first i think this is uh, some steps towards that but it's actually kind of a step down versus free outlaw samurai i think that's a much stronger film stylistically this feels a little bit quick maybe quickly made um not as quickly made as the second Samurai Wolf movie, which felt like it was uh, like uh, pasted together quite quickly. But uh, we we have this uh, continual content of a main character's break with the clan, and uh, I don't know if um, that's I literally don't know if that's something of his own or just a content or a trope copied from one movie that did really well and then everybody wanted to do this storyline because it pops up in this one in Goyukin to an extent in Hitokiri so did, you know do you know if uh, if that was something Japanese filmmakers took from another movie making a movie about breaking away from the clan and how all the violent consequences of that I'm gonna assume that's historical I mean that did happen that you know you know a lot of people know the term Ronin you know, there were people who were outcasts from their clans or just had quit. As far as, you know, the sort of, you know, the bloodshed that would occur, I'm not really absolutely sure, to be honest. But it's not necessarily a copy of a Kurosawa film that came out, like, the week before. Well, I'm sure he was doing a little of that, of that too, because obviously Gosho was influenced by Kurosawa. You know, he would have to follow the same sort of things uh, in Kurosawa's films, uh, in his own films, you know, just... You know, for just for popularity's sake. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm sure he did that too, but it's not like it. I don't think it's like a historically, you know, inaccuracy. And I think, you know, because of the times, samurai films, they really had their their time, you know. And even though samurai films, you know, last have lasted through, you know, I mean, how many cent, cent, uh, how many decades has it been, you know, now that we've had samurai film? But samurai film now, you know, they don't feel of their time and not not as in time period. You know, the samurai films, when looked at from the uh, lens of, you know, this is the 50s, 60s, you know, a great time of upheaval, you know, a time of, uh, you know, modernity, as well as, you know, cherishing the, the past, you know, the traditions of the past, that kind of thing. I think samurai film really really hit home with people because of what was happening with them at that moment, you know, whereas modern samurai film, even though, you know, you'll see those same sorts of tropes, they don't seem as relevant because it just feels like they're following along with, 
you know, what a samurai film is. This is what a samurai film is. It's about someone breaking away from a clan or something. That for the modern age, even though, you know, okay, we can understand that as being an interesting story trope or some somewhat engaging story trope, I should say. It's not really something that speaks to the modern age as much as it did, you know, back in the fifties and sixties. Just I think that's why as a whole, when we look at film you know, we think of samurai film, you know, we focus on that era because that's when the directors are really tuned into the times and really, in a way, were, you know, creating these films that could speak to those times. You know, maybe they weren't doing that directly. They weren't saying like, you know, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look at the newspapers. And I'm going to try to, you know, interpolate some sort of samurai story out of this. But at the very least, I think they were really kind of touching on things, you know, whether, again, directly or indirectly is, you know, it's probably up for debate. But, you know, it was of its epic and era, I guess you'd say. I, I kind of asked because uh, you, you were mentioning that there were some quite, seemed like direct lifts in Free Outlaw Samurai from other movies. Not in a crappy way or anything, but it, it, the, the similarities were quite striking compared to other movies. But still, still we didn't dislike Free Outlaw Samurai for it. it, it it's just one of those things that happens uh, where, where it was pushed on by the studio to make something similar to that movie that was so so successful. Or it was just in the air anyway that uh, that uh, these are tropes and these are storylines that, um, that we can do too. Right. Yeah. You know, in the end, it's still a product, you know, you know, studios, directors, they they want to sell it. They want to make money so they can make more product. And so, you know, you will have to follow along with, you know, what's popular at the time. But of course, the real challenge is to make something that is still your own. Right. Yes. Indeed. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of these Japanese directors from this era who we still talk about were directors who could do that. You know, people like Seijun Suzuki. I mean, he was just taking, you know, stupid Yakuza action potboiler type films. But what he was doing is he was putting his own little spin on things that, you know, now we kind of see as, oh, my God, that's genius. But, of course, we know that back then the studio heads hated it and he got fired because of that. So, you know, is it genius or not? You know, you know, that's up for debate most people would probably say yes you know but you know in the end you know these people who we now talk about are these people who could work within the system and then without without the system at the same time and of course there's some directors who could work completely without the system you know the avant-garde directors or the japanese new wave directors so to speak uh, some of them who broke away from the studios and were able to you know create their own sort of um industry sub-industry i guess you should you could say right there, there's some nicely messy choreography but it's uh, more bloodless this time there's no you know fountains of blood compared to yeah. other movies uh, and it seems to be like almost a conscious choice from movie to movie so far like we're gonna reel it in with this movie we're not gonna really reel it in we're gonna have geysers of blood here so but it's still very it's still you know the even so the violence is still pretty visceral i mean Especially in black and white, I think that's uh, in black and white. I think the the gritty violence in at least these kind of movies, the samurai movies, it comes off uh, more impactful in my eyes. Right. Yeah, and he's not afraid to you know cut away from a reaction or you know maybe amp up the the sound design a little bit. You know, I, I kind of felt that you know yeah I wasn't thinking oh my god this is this is a gore fest, but I was thinking this is still pretty gritty stuff. You know that's. And, and, and you know, remember, Samurai Wolf opted for 
the the bloodshed, you know, the visible bloodshed. So I I, I think there seems to be a take on each movie in terms of all, how far are we going to go or what makes sense for this movie. So, uh, uh, but yeah, it, it's solid and um, it's available on Criterion Collection DVD. But it's a featureless DVD, so if you're a Hulu Plus subscriber, you can actually stream it in slightly better quality on their um, on their service, which I would recommend. Yeah, because we have no Blu-ray of it or anything like that. But uh, there's also a cool box set it's part of that at least contains Kill and Samurai something else. There's like three movies in that DVD box set. If I remember correctly, it's four. My box set is unfortunately in the different room right now. But um, yeah, it's a great box set. I think it was one of the first really great Criterion Collection box sets, at least, you know, again, I'm biased toward Japanese cinema, but, you know. Yeah, it would. The, the, I think the value would increase a little bit more if you picked up the box set. If you need a physical copy of Sword of the Beast, but um, because, because the great essay in the, on the DVD is available on the website, the Criterion website anyway, so that's not a physical ex- exclusive. But uh, solid enough. Let's move over to Goyukin. And uh, what's your brief take on this 1969 effort? Well, let's see. Well, now we're moving to color film. Yes, indeed. As I said, I, I think. At least for samurai film, I kind of prefer black and white just because, you know, the stark contrast um, of uh, black and white itself. Um, really kind of, accentuates. It's kind of still colorless, this one. <laughs> right, yeah. But, but yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, but it really ac- accentuates the uh, action and violence. And as we know, Gosha is really kind of more of a director that's more leaning toward a, more of an action director to begin with. But um, Goyokin is in color, and which um, actually greatly benefits the film, even though, again, we're sticking with uh, it being a samurai film because of the setting, uh, the cinematography. Beautiful, excellent. I mean, the film is set in the snowlands of Japan, if I remember correctly. It's uh, set in Sadojima, which is uh, up in the north. Regardless of where they were, this looks uh, gritty to shoot because it's not uh, like snow in a studio or anything. No, no, no. Not at all. For people who are also fans of Western films, I think a, a suitable equivalent is something like The Great Silence, which is a film that's also set in snow. And it's a real big part of the film is that environment that they're in. Because, you know, obviously this is not dust bowl, you know, rocks and dirt type of environment that we've seen in a lot of samurai films. This is, these are people out in the snow, you know, with horses, they're bundled up. I'm sure this was a hell of a shoot to get through uh, for the actors. And mud and crap in the one village, too. In fact, I did hear an interesting story about this particular production. It was that um, there's one scene in which, and I think this was a story that was from uh, one of Patrick Galloway's books. Uh, maybe it was, uh, he has two books there on Samurai Film. I just want to do a little shout out uh, to his books. Uh, one is uh, Stray Dogs and Lone Wolves. And the other one is Warring Clans, uh, Flashing Blades. In one of them, I believe there's a story that he relates that um, Gulsha had asked um, Tatsuya Nakadai, who's, a, who's the protagonist of the story, in one scene to, um, to climb this cliff with only a uh, rope tied around him as safety. <laughs> and then uh, Nakadai says, like, you want me to do that? He's like, why don't you do that? He says to Gulsha, right? And Gulsha says, okay, I'll do that. So he does it himself, and then after getting up the cliff, he says to Nakadai, now it's your turn. And he did it. After I read the story, I watched the scene. It's With that in mind, you know, thinking that there's only a a rope holding this. this, And Tatsuya Nakadai at this point is basically, he's not at his peak as an actor or 
or even his popularity. If we had lost Tatsuya Nakadai because of this incident, knowing you know what we know about him now, which you know, in my opinion, he is the greatest Japanese actor of the modern era. Fighting you know, words. I mean, I know kidding. a lot of a lot of people like Mifune. Mifune, I, I think, is a fine actor. I think they're a little bit different. Uh, Nakadai to me has a lot greater range and a lot more. He's just more eclectic, I think, as as an actor. Ten things that are wrong with Mifune and ten things that are great about Nakadai, my clickbait article. Okay, <laughs> yes. But um, knowing the story and thinking, you know, well, we could have lost one of the greatest actors, Japanese actors of um, all time here just because of this situation. It's like, wow, that's balls, you know. <laughs> it's really kind of scary. Or reckless, really reckless. Yeah, very reckless. <laughs> no, very reckless. Very reckless. Yeah, very much so. Going back to the film, excuse me. After that uh, nice little story. Yeah, I think overall this is actually a really good film. <laughs> I know that's pretty conclusive right there. Unfortunately, we only have this DVD copy of it that was put out by, if I, if I remember correctly, Tokyo Shock in the U.S. And this is so far one of the few films I've seen maybe in the past like year or so that I think this really needs a Blu-ray update. You know, by someone like Criterion or whatnot. I don't know if they have rights to it. I I would guess that they don't yet. I have not seen anything on their website that says um, that they do. I'm not usually a type who will say like, you know, hey, I wish this was kind of better looking, to be honest, because a lot of times it's like, hey, you know, let the chips fall where they may. You know, I mean, so it's not a great print. You know, I'm of the generation that I'm used to these, you know seventh generation VHS tapes you know what I mean so I'm like kind of glad that I can see it but there's one film where I think to myself I really want to see this in high definition mm-hmm. blu-ray you know quality wise it was really murky and I really wanted to be able to see the environment more the story itself was um it's okay you know I mean it's just it kind of felt feels like again we're actually it's kind of funny that we package these three films together one is because, you know, quality quality wise, they could all actually use their own individual like episodes, you know, focusing on them. But also be, because the themes are so similar in the films. It was honestly the case that, you know, um, you know, in typical Japan on Fire Manor, I had watched these films like maybe a couple of months ago when after they had been assigned and, you know, after some time had gone past and and whatnot, you know, and realizing, okay, we gotta record for this pretty soon. You know, of course, our recording schedule kind of fell through because of uh, because I got a little ill at that time. And then, you know, in the interim, you know, when I when we were trying to figure out an, another time to record, you know, I was thinking I got to rewatch these films. And I just kind of thought to myself, now, which was which? <laughs> because the stories in some ways feel very similar. You know, I mean, the characters are different. The actors are different. But they touch on very similar themes such that, you know, I was like, is that the one with uh, Shintaro Katsu? Or, no, no, that's the one with uh, Tatsuya Nakadai. Right? I think it, that was where I was coming from, where I was asking you earlier. Is, is this like riffing on the, a, a big Kurosawa film uh, in a lazy manner? But, but uh, you know, yeah, indeed, they, they, that uh, whole breaking free from the clan, for instance, and all the, the results, good or bad, mostly bad. That comes from that, uh, indeed. So, so I was thinking, like, is this like three out of one hundred movies with the same trope from those years? You know, uh, because I, I'm I'm only vaguely familiar with uh, with the output. In the light of that, yeah, that's I think that's a really good point because individually, if you watch the films, you can say, okay, well, you know, that's they're very distinct, you know, actors, very distinct characters, very distinct settings. All three films, you know, but uh, 
but yeah, the themes are are similar enough where it, you might actually kind of forget which is which exactly yeah yeah sometimes uh, for work that's a disadvantage when you watch similar movies close together sometimes the impactful nature of them might be slightly reduced when you sort of cram them into a cramming session almost uh, uh, but not that i think sword of the beast will transform into the greatest japanese ever made when i rewatch it you know six months from now or a year from now but uh there there, there is something to be said for that when you do it for work there there, there can be a disadvantage uh doing so uh, when it's all similar genre in this case right yeah in other words don't watch them all in a row <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly like a triple bill uh triple bill in town uh, for these three movies you might want to might want to avoid that part great part even mesmerizing part having trouble engaging for two hours it's a fairly long movie uh, story-wise that's also my problem but uh, man is the atmosphere awesome and uh verging on horror of course because the, one of the first scenes is uh Nakedai discovering that abandoned home that uh yeah, you know disheveled home finding crows all over the place and he finds a body and there's a big sting like a big horror sting you know so it's in your face loud and ugly all right and uh that that that's that spin on the samurai movie even though he might not have been the first to do so is is welcome i mean uh worn and ang worn look and angry feeling within the movie is uh is really compelling and the the, the violence is uh also uh he's not doing i mean it, it sounds like a daft thing to focus on but i but i did write it in my notes anyway there, there's no like blood spurts here but you know open wounds and stuff like that like those consequences of violence rather than playful blood spurts and stuff like that so but the violence is loud and short too so uh and and, and the snow atmosphere creates these wonderful contrasts of course he he shoots these uh night action scenes that i where he blacks out well the night is black of course but because we're in such a desolate area in the movie the the backgrounds become like pitch black at points mm-hmm. which is a l- little bit of something i uh i personally liked uh, in terms of my visual appreciation of the movies movie but uh he, you know he has a confident grip on his movie and uh it is the the better one you know leading up to hitokiri which i think is his best one i've seen so far but one of the problems for me anyway i think the character gallery seems a tad too big all the reveals later in the movie doesn't elevate it into true impactful status i think there might be a two or three too many threads or characters going on at the same time but certainly not the same old same old and uh, tatsuya nakeda is i think is marvelous i think he, he nicely underplays a lot of it's uh you know this character and what he's burdened with and what he's angry about uh and so it's more emotional and human than past work, I think. And uh, yeah, I really like it. Uh, you know, details like for, for the end, and this is, I guess, my final note. Uh, details like uh, the the characters actually freezing in this environment. They're not superhuman. Like the, their fingers are, they can't hold their own swords at points. They're struggling to hold their damn swords. And I thought that was like, yeah, a nicely human rather than superhuman touch. Right. to the genre and maybe that's me all used to these uh, hong kong swordplay movies where obviously it's fantasy tinted but uh, i don't know uh, that kind of struck me as uh, he stopped to do that <laughs> you know there are humans after all the, these of the you know this environment is cold as shit so having a big old end fight uh, it's not gonna be easy so so yeah i i 
almost had time to to rewatch it again because I really was fascinated by the atmosphere of it. It's kind of a visual, just in your face kind of experience, and that's mesmerizing in itself. But it's um, so I do want to re-experience it, but a little bit too long, a little bit too uh, too long for the story that it does present. But uh, for for my introduction to Nakedai, which is through Hitokiri now more aware that he's in it and this movie is quite a marvelous introduction for me like two very different performances and two very different looks to him also it's a kind of a chameleon in a way i think it's no he he, he doesn't stand out as like boom the guy from goikin when you see hitokiri at least not in my eyes so he seems like a nicely an actor that can um, appear in a different manner and doesn't stand out as as a mifune would do you know each and every movie that movie star aura that uh, always uh, dominates the room not in a bad way but uh, it seems to me anyway that uh, he could sink his teeth into characters uh, quite nicely through through the help of costume design of course and stuff like that but yeah well uh, like i said with nakada i mean i think he's easily one of the the greatest uh, japanese um actors um, certainly, I think he's the greatest, you know, currently living at the moment. He's still, okay. he's still alive, cool, still alive, and still, yeah, he's still acting. He's still, um, he's still doing theater too, but he is uh, kind of slowing down slowly. As far as his, you know, his filmography and the variety of films that he's done, I mean, a Japanese film fan could easily say that just from, like, see, I'm just going to give you like a quick a quick uh, number of films that he's uh, he's starred in that he's pretty well known for in the West. You know, this will give you an idea of how much talent and skill that he has and how much in demand he was, too, as, as an actor. So he was in The Human Condition, for example, When a Woman Ascends the Stairs, Immortal Love, Yojimbo, Harakiri, Sanjuro, High and Low, Kwaidang, you know, Yotsuya Kaidang, Face of Another... Sort of doom. Now, if you are any sort of fan of the Criterion Collection, you'll know that that's actually a pretty decent chunk of their Japanese film selection right there. So that's that's how talented the actor he is. Is he a lead in Sort of Doom and Harakiri? Because I've seen those. Sort of Doom, yeah, he is the lead. Uh, Harakiri, yes, he is also the lead of that too. He has a very similar um, similar mustache and beard thing going on in in. All three of those films. You know, Harakiri was one of the other, maybe out of four, that they screened during that season of Japanese movies on TV sometime mm-hmm. in the 90s. That, 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 that's the only way I've, um, I've seen it. I haven't picked up a DVD of Harakiri, but I remember that was uh, one of their choices. So, And showed him in widescreen, too. So you got like, uh, uh, we get to so it's a full screen uh, or uh, a 133 movie originally, but uh, they did show them on, on their own terms, so to say so. That's a, that's a little memory that came back to me. Let's move on to uh, the Hitokiri section. We still have, a, have another actor to discuss, but uh, regardless, this is the main section coming up uh, for you. And the plot from 1969's Hitokiri from the Wikipedia entry goes as follows. Uh, Okada Iso, played by Shintaro Katsu, is a ronin born into poverty who joins the Tosa Loyalists, a group headed by Han Peita Takechi, played by Tatsuya Nakedai. Iso soon becomes a well-known and successful killer, and he is stubbornly loyal to Takechi. However, the character of Ryoma Sakamoto warns him that he is merely Takechi's dog, and that Takechi will end up betraying him. So, before we talked uh, the movie, we uh, said we were going to talk a little bit about uh, its lead, Shintaro Katsu. Uh, actor, producer, writer, director, which sounds like 
you know, a Hong Kong entertainer profile. Sometimes they do it all and then have a second job on the side as well in, so to say, real life. But uh, he he, uh, he uh, was a behind-the-scenes person and on-camera person, so to say. Born in 1931 as Toshio Okumura and the son of a kabuki performer. Uh, he is also the younger brother of actor... Tomisaburo Wakayama and uh, I'm sure I should know this gentleman, uh, do you? Uh, as a matter of fact, his uh, younger brother? Yes, I mean he's most famous for being the lead in uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. Right, oh of course, of course yeah, they're, they're very similar similar looking as a matter of fact. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah I, I used to confuse them all the time to be honest. Uh, he started off uh, Shintaro Kato, that is, in the entertainment circles as a shamisen player and the instrument Shamisen, if I even am pronouncing that right, is a three-stringed instrument with Chinese roots and is played with a plectrum. I remember seeing in Goyokin in the beginning with that uh, uh, female player in the market. Uh, Do you know if that was the instrument she was uh, playing on? Yes. Uh, Katsu even recorded albums as a vocalist with focus on both modern pop and, and also the traditional music genre of Enka. And uh, switching to the more lucrative side of acting, uh, that started in the mid-50s, and uh, Shintaro Katsu eventually broke through in a big fashion uh, in the next decade, though, starring in several film series, such as the gangster series dubbed the Akumio series. But in 1962, he appeared in the first Satoichi movie as the titular blind swordsman, a role he would reprise in in an additional 25 movies, or in total 25 movies, between 1962 and 1989, including a co-produced venture with Hong Kong in the form of Satoichi meets the one-armed swordsman, which is played by Jimmy Wang Yu. And the Katsu even directed uh, two of the Satoichi movies, including the last one. And uh, I might as well ask you that, uh, you know, a, br- a brief take. <laughs> if you've seen a decent chunk of that series, is it an uneven series of films or are they actually astounding quality considering the amount that they produced? I would say the more so the latter. You know, I mean, we're talking about how many films are again? 25 films, 26, excuse me, 26 plus. I think it was one, two, maybe three seasons of the TV series. Uh, surprisingly, with so much with so much output in that series, that uh, it's pretty consistent. There are some that are better than others, of course, and but I don't think there's any one film. I, and I haven't watched every film in the entire series. You know, just, do, do, do you have the Criterion box? Yeah, I I got that, um, but um, I still haven't gotten through it. It's and, three meters tall. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's a gigantic thing. It's bigger than my phone book, right? So. <laughs> Do people do people still have phone books? I don't even know why I said that. To be honest, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a proper analogy now for uh, for the modern age. It's 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 bigger than my uh, than my iMac. <laughs> I don't even have an iMac. But anyway, so um, there is some variance in quality as far as what I've seen. Uh, but I think overall, that as far as I've known and read and seen, I don't think there's any time where you could feel that the series ever jumped the shark. Mm-hmm. Um, including uh, Beat Takeshi's version, which came out in, I think it was 1993. Wasn't it in 2000s, uh, Beat Takeshi's? No, I think, I think you're right. Excuse me, 2003. You know, I think a lot of people were excited about that version, but I, there was this undercurrent of, oh, this is going to suck because it doesn't have Shintaro Katsu in it. I mean, you know, that's, that's usually how people think, you know, right? You know, it's actually pretty good. You know, I was surprised that I saw it in the theaters um, in Japan when I was over there and I was not expecting to be 
particularly wowed by it. But I was like, hey, this is a solid film. I enjoyed that. I remember liking it. It felt very... Um, it had his uh, sort of humorous uh, and his quirks in the movie, but uh, I still liked it. He, 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 made, he created a look for that part that uh, was fun. Right. Uh, but yeah, so Katsu was exposed in major fashion during this time, not only in the Satoichi movies, but, but uh, he was working for Daiya, starring frequently on a monthly basis even, it said, in uh, movies and uh, simultaneously in other movie series alongside the Satoichi ones, such as the Hoodlum Soldier series, uh, which I'm sure is like a either 20 plus movies or 5-6 movies, but still uh, the, the, the Japanese uh, cinema loved its... Uh, sort of series uh, co- connected or not uh, you know uh, you know uh, Fukasako's gangster series and stuff like that uh, uh, makes for massive box sets uh, sometimes uh, <laughs> these kind of series but uh, he wasn't content with being in front of the camera only and his production company Katsu Productions uh, formed after Daiei went bankrupt uh, were behind the likes of Hitokiri Lone Wolf and Cub and Hanzo the Racer trilogy which uh, he starred in as well he had the rumor, you know, surrounding him that he was known as an actor or producer that would make noise and trouble on sets, as well as in his uh, personal life. And um, drinking and uh, drug use resulted in multiple arrests, uh, even as late as 1992. And uh, apparently, Akira Kurosawa cast him for 1980s Kagemusha. And on day one, things went wrong as uh, Katsu left the production. And reportedly, it was due to him bringing his own film crew. Something Kurosawa took offense to, and Katsu was fired from the movie and replaced with, here we go again, Tatsuya Nakadai. And, and, and I guess the results are, were still still good, right? Yeah, Nakadai is stellar in that film. Right it's on. one of my favorite performances of his. It's, uh, some you know that recalled uh, the incident, if you have, they wrapped that clashing cotton, uh, such as the script supervisor uh, Teruyu Nogami, who says the two had a personality clash with unfortunate artistic results. It's sort of the, the light version of it, I'm sure. Katsu seemed like a guy who would make noise if he didn't like something, rather than be nice and quiet and polite about it. But regardless, that uh, that uh, that happened. Uh, he wasn't as active in the 80s. Um, he concluded the Satoichi series as actor and director in 1989, and even had a small appearance in the Hong Kong-Japan co-production Saga of the Phoenix in 1990, starring alongside... Yumbyu and Hiroshi Abe, or Abe, which is a sequel to Peacock King, which was, uh, I think, a fairly popular movie in Japan. So uh, no wonder yeah. they got uh, some um, co-production things going on there. The, the, that movie is detested, Saga of the Phoenix, but I quite like it. And I'm a big fan of the director as well, which is uh, Nam Night Choi, the director of Story of Ricky and uh, Seventh oh. Curse and the likes. Uh, unfortunately, at a fair, you know, fairly young age, Shintaro Katsu, passed away of uh, of uh, head and neck cancer or farin- pharyngeal cancer. I don't know how to pronounce the name, but uh, yeah, he wasn't that old when he passed away. So uh, 1997, we lost uh, we lost uh, what looks to me, based on a few performances, like a very compelling actor. Not a subtle actor, mind you, but he looks like a compelling actor that um, wasn't just all you know, Hans of the Racer style, you know, one-tone kind of fun performances. There could be some dramatic range to him as well, based on what I see in Hitokiri. But uh, what's your general view on uh, on uh, Shintaro Katsu? Well, yeah, I think both he and his brother are, are really great character actors. I, I'm not sure, sure about leads, so to speak. Obviously, Sato, Zatoichi and Lone Wolf and Cub, you get you get to see that uh you know them in lead roles but even so they are still playing more like character actor type of uh, roles 
you know, genre being genre films and whatnot. But uh, both of them just have this real innate, natural sense of entertaining an audience. And um, I think that probably comes a lot from their father, who was, you know, a master uh, shamisen player and, you know, taught the two of them how to play as well as I'm sure probably taught them how to sing because um, the father was a master of this um, of this music type, uh, shamisen music type called uh, Naga Uta, which is uh, basically playing and singing at the same time. Uh, which uh, which was something that was sort of new, I guess, for the uh, um, you know back then, and but that was something that uh, he had uh, he had mastered and uh, brought on to his sons. And you know, when you're doing that sort of um, entertain uh, that sort of music, you know, you have to be entertaining. You know, you can't just it's not just playing you know rock covers or something like that. You know? Sure. You have to have that flair and that that sense of you know how to get your audience involved and engaged. You know, as you mentioned, Katsu, looking at, you know, how hefty of a guy he was, he really liked his uh, his wine, women, and song, quite literally, I guess you could say. You did mention that he got arrested a couple times for drugs. There was one time that I do remember pretty fondly because I was in in the place at the time. He got busted in Hawaii for, if I remember correctly, it was marijuana and I think it was also cocaine, too. I, I uh, lived in Hawaii for about uh, six years, and um, this was actually before I started living there, but I was already interested in attending the university there because they have a good um, college of uh, labor studies there. I, I, I remember this incident because I had known about him by this time, of course, because of the Zatuichi series, and um, but he was questioned by the press of, you know, you know what had happened was he really... He wasn't actually a mastermind of of drugs or anything. And what it, what it was was he just hid the drugs in his in his underwear essentially. And the I remember the press asking him, you know, like, hey, you know, what's up? Why why did why did you do this and you know all that stuff? And he said, oh, where where do they find hidden? He said, he said, oh, well, they found it in my underwear. And then he, he afterwards he proclaimed, so that means I'm not going to wear underwear anymore. So <laughs> so this kind of shows you sort of what kind of like a garrulous person that he was. If I were to hear what you had said in in his biography, I would think, oh, God, what a crass jerk he is. But in, actually in real life, film lovers really liked him or the, just the audience in general really loved him because, yeah, he did have problems, obviously, some personal issues, some issues of wanting control, you know, obviously issues with substance, substances. But overall, he was a very charming person. He worked. He co- he worked and completed. You know, he worked and executed. Uh, you know, as a as a filmmaking exactly. uh, persona too. So it it's not like everything fell apart. It seemed like. Uh, and I mean, if you've seen the guy, he's he's a, he's a pretty big guy, but he's not Im- really that imposing. I mean, he was a strict person, from what I could tell, from what I've seen of him in like interviews and whatnot and documentaries, but. You know, I think a lot of people took took to him as being like a big, just like, you know, a big lovable teddy bear, you know, to a degree. You know how some people are really big who, you know, you just you just feel kind of a little bit attracted to them because, you know, they just look really like nice, gentle people, you know, besides, uh, I mean, um, aside from their uh, exterior, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how the public generally um, generally saw him. But it's also worth noting that uh, he married an actress, uh, Tamao Nakamura, who is almost equal as far as popularity with the public. So it's kind of interesting because you would think that Shintaro Katsu might marry someone who would be kind of his lesser. But if anything, his wife 
especially now that he that uh, you know she's survived him uh, by a couple of years, if I remember correctly. That uh, she actually became uh, a bigger figure in uh, the overall entertainment world. They were essentially married until he passed away, and and they got married in I think it was the thirties, possibly no, the sixties. Excuse me, the thirties is when she was born. She was born in nineteen thirty nine. She's she she's still alive. She's on TV a lot. I I saw her so much on TV when I used to live over in Japan. But um, yeah, they got married in sixty two, and then they um, of course by his departing. Uh, they ceased to be, so to speak. Drinking and drugs didn't dis- like uh, didn't uh, create havoc for their relationship. Clearly, because uh... well, that's an interesting thing because she's actually a pretty strong personality. I don't know exactly if there was any issue. I, I mean, knowing I guess knowing her from her personality on TV, because I mean, she'll I've heard her talk about you know Shintaro Katsu um, in interviews and whatnot. You know her personality. I bet she really hated it. <laughs> this is my guess. She probably goes on him a lot about that kind of thing. Is my guess. I she doesn't seem to be the kind of person who would be engaged in that. But I don't know. You know, that's a good. I, I've never really researched uh, Tamal Nakamura, but uh, you know, maybe I, I can look into that someday. You know, just to see like what her real feelings were towards his uh, substance use. Yeah, I don't know if um, those uh, documentaries that that are on the Hitokiri French special edition, if they uh, had her as an interview um, interview participant or not. So, uh, because I sent those your way, so maybe there's some stories in there about uh, about uh, Katsue and not just uh, Gosha. Uh, okay, let's uh, talk about the movie finally, and for my quick opinion, it can seem overwhelming at times with its talks of clans and loyalists and politics and what have you, but uh, Gosha easily earns our trust, and it boils down to a very clear dark tale about someone who thought they mattered but didn't in the eyes of uh, his leaders uh, and uh, the ones that you know he followed uh, followed uh, blindly and all of that so it's not as heavy as it sounds but it's all embodied uh, well by the most assured direction I've seen Gosha uh, do so far in our examination of uh, of his career and Shintaro Katsu's lead performance is uh, very much spot on, uh, dramatically layered. Uh, there's some rather gruesome violence here as well. Uh, blood really does go spurt spurt at times here, but it's not uh, the lone wolf and cub kind. This is uh, more verging on, um, you know, distressing and disturbing violence. Yeah, a lot bloodier. I think I mentioned in the first episode, or maybe I just mentioned to you in passing that... Uh, in some ways, Gosha is a, was ahead of the curve in terms of violence because you know when we watched um, Three Outlaw Samurai, you know we mentioned you know how how visceral some of the scenes were without being particularly bloody, but this film is pretty bloody. This is getting into lone wolf and cub territory, and this was actually several years before that series. So mm, and and even uh, even before uh, was this before Lady Snowblood as well. I think this was before yeah, Lady Snowblood. I think the first one was 1970, if I remember correctly. But still, I, do, I do just remember them being a lot more fun in the depiction of violence and more, you know, almost comic book in style. This may not be realistic as such, but it feels more distressing, at least. Uh, so, look, By the way, Lady Snowblood was 1973. Right, right, right. Uh, so uh, what about your quick opinion uh, for now before we discuss it in depth uh, of um, Hitokiri or aka Tenshu in some places? Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's it's kind of weird that uh, the movie has two different names. Hitokiri is the is the Japanese title. That's that's what Japanese film uh, goers will know it as. A tenchu is actually something that 
it's a word that's spoken in the film. I guess I guess I could say more like it's declared in the film. Tenchu means basically like punishment from God, and it was something that the uh, assassins, I guess, were required to say as they were, you know, killing their prey, their assassinees, their victims. I guess you could say, you know. So it's kind of interesting that I guess some non-Japanese um, distributor just decided, hey, they keep saying Tenchu, so let's just call it Tenchu, you know. They, they do mention Hitokiri at times. There's a scene where that, that they translated Hitokiri as killer, but it's used in a scene where it's not uh, a particularly honorable thing to say to someone. It's more of a taunt, uh, and, and they use Hitokiri in connection to that. But I, I don't, I, you know, is it a name or does it mean anything? Hitokiri essentially means assassin. Um, literally, it means to uh, cut down a person and cut down meaning with a sword of course not not with bad language or anything like that but um the thing is that this film does have some historical context that kind of helps a little bit to understand um which is i guess you could say one of the faults of the film if you're not a japanese film goer it might kind of pass over your head as to you know who these characters are and what their relations are and whatnot but um essentially Shintaro Katsu's character uh Okada Izo is one of four real life Hitokiri or assassins uh, of that era. Now, one of the other ones that appears in the film is uh, Tanaka Shinbei, who um, is played by Yukio Mishima, who is going to be someone that um, literature, Japanese literature fans will really know as um, one of the authors, one of the great authors of uh, modern literature, who famously um, committed Harukiri himself, um, committed suicide because of a failed attempt to I forget overthrow something something he was he was a bit of a right wing nut in a way even though he was such a great writer um I should say despite being a great writer or in addition to being a great writer depending on you know your feelings towards you know right wingism and all that stuff so these two um uh, Shintaro Katsu characters and uh and um Yukio Mishima's character they're playing these real life people who are part of this kind of band they were called the in English, the four Hitokiri of the Bakumatsu. And they were just very accomplished assassins. There are two others who I believe do not appear in the film uh, as characters. So I guess they're a little less involved. But uh, it's kind of interesting in that light to have this understanding that it helps to have some um, historical uh, grasp of these characters. You know, likewise, uh, you mentioned that... Um, that Sakamoto uh, Ryoma is one of the uh, characters. You know, he was also a very, um, he's also a very well-known historical figure who tried to essentially unite. At the time, you know, Japan was broken into different clans that were all battling each other, and you know, his his vision was to unite these clans in the one nation to basically stand up to the foreign invaders who were coming in at the time. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't the kind of person who wanted to shut off Japan from foreign influence, but rather to sort of embrace the modern conveniences as well as honor the traditions of Japan. So in a way he's seen as sort of like a moderate hero. He's neither really left or right in either way. That's what I mean by moderate, by the way. Um, And I think he, he's probably one of the most famous historical characters for uh, Japanese people, you know, something like, um, like among Americans, maybe like George Washington or something like that. You know, someone who had this, this great grand vision of the nation as one, that kind of person, as far as, you know, um, 
as far as uh, name recognition is concerned. So with, with all that background, uh, regardless if that enhanced your view or, or not that movie, um, and I don't know if this was the first viewing or not, but uh, uh, was uh, did this uh, signal any progress uh, in Gorsha as a filmmaker in your eyes? Well, again, you know, this, this goes back to the, the this film having two different titles. I thought I had seen this film before, but actually when I watched it, I realized I hadn't. Nope. And I, <laughs> yeah, I think it's because of... The, the confusion with the names, I was like... And oh, you'd have to wait for the effing, effing title card as well, because the title card appears like 10 minutes in, like this time. Right, so right. you're like, what is exactly. it called? What is it called? Come on, come on. <laughs> right, because I, I kept on thinking, you know, Tenchu, Tenchu, and I'm like, and then the title card comes out, I'm like, that doesn't say Tenchu, <laughs> you know? And I realized, okay, wait, I haven't seen this film. The historical background definitely helps in understanding the film, but overall, moving away from that, let, let me just go to opinion and say... Thought this was a really good film. This film, to me, really showcases Shintaro Katsu's acting ability. Sometimes he's he's a little bit off, but I think he shows himself to be a real powerful force um, acting wise in this film. You know, he really throws himself into the role. You could tell. You know, I think I think he understood that. You know, this was possibly you know maybe a role of the lifetime sort of thing, or maybe he just wanted to take it so seriously because of, you know, the implications of the, you know, being a historically based film or whatnot. Maybe he just had a great old time. Who knows? He, he certainly makes it his own because it's, he is truly like this very cinematic animal, but yet keeps that balance all in check, I think. Yeah, because it makes sense for the character and he doesn't go overboard uh, just because he can as an actor and has that frequency in him so oh i think i i think it's debatable whether he goes overboard i think there are a couple scenes where i'm kind of thinking okay that's maybe a little too much you know there's there's one scene where he catches up he was he's been sort of um anticipating this one assassination or this one raid attempt i should say basically he gets left in the cold the the clan basically goes on without him and does it so he <laughs> starts running. No, this, he starts running. <laughs> I, I know, and, I know. I, I, we, it, it's a comedic sequence, but I don't think <laughs> yeah. they uh, really aimed for comedy. But even when, um, even when he arrives on the scene, you know, he starts saying like, "I'm Okada Izo, I'm Okada Izo." He's just, he's just slashing away at everyone. I mean, just that entire sequence is just so comical. Yeah, probably. You know, that was probably intended in in a certain way, but. You know what they should have had? They should have had that Indiana Jones thing where they show a map and, and like a red dot, <laughs> yeah. like traveling. Because it seems like he runs yeah, across the, the entirety of Japan. And and you'd have to have some kind of great music. Well, they do have great music. They it's um the score is like that kind of Western music that dun 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 dun. dun you know. But but yeah, I, I quite agree. That that's like I, I had a great time watching the sequence. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, strays a little bit, I suppose. But. Uh, this is still a character who lives in squalor, as we see. He's a frustrated animal. He's in limbo. He's waiting. You know, he's desperate for a job, a task, any task. I want action. So we even get a little bit of a comedic uh, anger tantrum as he fucks up his house, essentially. Just, uh, you know, and kills a chicken or a bird that's uh, that he has uh, around either for food or whatever. And uh, he even goes into a pawn shop to try to, uh, you know, get some money for this, uh, like, dusty old uh, suit of armor. Trying to intimidate the shopkeeper, and the shopkeeper really has none, you know, isn't really intimidated because it seems like this is the fifth time this week this is gonna happen, <laughs> you know, and uh, 
uh, ideas are planted though through his big presence and uh, you're instantly reminded i suppose if you slightly forgotten what a big presence he is through his build through his eyes through his aggressive acting uh, but and and also the, the, this is a reminder that these kind of characters that are you know waiting for a task and are sort of in limbo and are easily controlled i suppose they can exist in this cinematic world and and historically as well so uh it it really sets the tone nicely from the beginning and obviously yeah. the sequence leading up to the credits appearing 10 12 minutes in really that's gosha setting a tone for prolonged draining ugly and bloody violence uh, because I, I think it's a marvelous sequence it, uh, it it's incredibly bloody but it's set in rain so you barely see it and i, I think that's a wonderful sort of a striking balance he does here for that opening assassination that katsu is asked to witness merely he's not he, he's not allowed to participate he's gonna learn to kill it's kind of interesting too because it's like um yeah it's almost like he's like an apprentice at that point and then you know while he's watching this assassination happen he's like i can do this i can do this you know it kind of feels like some like kid wa- watching a baseball game or something you know like he's being inspired to become this great athlete or something and in fact it's sort of like it's like this twisted uh, version of that uh, sort of um, sort of uh, scene, you know, where um, where Katsu is uh, basically inspiring himself to just be an assassin, and you know he becomes. And it's questionable whether that was, you know, it actually happened in history, you know. But he becomes, and in real life, he did become basically a master assassin. He was one of the most feared assassins of that era, so. And and amazingly, not like him even standing there, like clenching his teeth. I can kill. Amazingly, it's it's not too much noise for the performance. I think uh, you know overall. Uh, I think he, he you know aside from those comedic moments, I think overall he really has a grasp of this character. And um, I don't know who else could have embodied him. Uh, maybe his brother, I suppose. But um, it really seems he was the one for that. I, I don't know if he would have been up for it at the time, but I could have seen someone like Mifune. Uh, been able to do that something like that um i think that role really requires presence you know it really requires someone who can ham it up a little bit which is why maybe mifune wouldn't take something like this because i mean he's he's a ham but he i don't think he was really into self-parody that much you know but i think that's the beauty of having shintaro katsu in that role actually to begin with because i think up to this point you know we could see that you know he was not as quite as multifaceted of an actor as you might think. I mean, I think there's a couple of Zatoichis. I mean, Zatoichi, the character Zatoichi, you know, he, that character just kind of instantly becomes a little bit um, uh, sympathetic, you know, just because of his condition being blind, of course. But, you know, that's a physical condition that, you know, he's born with. But I think that this character, we can see that he's sympathetic because you can see that he's really a damaged character. I mean, he's a damaged person, you know, and he's someone who, you know, he wants to better himself, but the way that he's bettering himself is basically destroying him, you know. See, he at least makes it seem like there's only one choice, like poverty squalor or achieving, you know, killing, you know, killer status, so, which is, you know, his view of it, not necessarily the actual view of the world. It's, maybe it's not that cynical, but, uh, you know, he's so eager. He's so eager to get into it. And uh, well, the thing is, his character, and I don't know about the real life Karaizo, but his character is seen as almost like stupid because he can't see the machinations of what's going on. Mm-hmm. 
you know, between him and the um, Tatsuya Nakarai's character, Han Peta uh, Takechi, you know, who was also a real life uh, person, by the way. And they had a real life relationship, uh, much like in the film. But of course, the film sort of fictionalizes uh, several aspects of it. But, uh, you know, he doesn't see these machinations going on. And he doesn't, he sees himself as being, you know, this great assassin, which he is. But he thinks that, you know, he's able to basically kill himself, <laughs> kill himself. That's kind of a weird grammar, but, but kill himself to the throne, so to speak. You know, like people will respect him because of all the work that he's done. When in fact, people actually despise him and fear him. And that's what happened in real life, too, is that he just became so feared that people didn't want to have to deal with him. And then, you know, part of the reason why he himself was executed was because he came to it came to the point that people just didn't want to deal with him. It was just garbage at that point. And, and really, sometimes that might be a red flag for a movie that we're going to follow a character that's incredibly flawed and violent and and i don't know if i have a good answer as to why this is compelling here and uh, all these these elements of going against the clan as uh, as you know our two of the movie will will show but yeah i just find it um, you know i'm a fan of actors acting and i find uh, this to be a good showcase of that i mean we spend time with katsu's character so we get an insight into you know the power he possesses, the the physical power, but also the weakness, as you just described, and uh, that he seems to also be a you know a gleeful killer. One at one point he has assassinated um, uh, like a second victim, as we see in the movie, or his first. You know, no, it's his first victim. The second is the one he strangles, but he has killed, and for some reason he decides to pierce his neck through a lantern and a big old special effects burst of uh, blood comes out of that and uh, looks fantastic technically so you know that's a character where we're now gonna follow that you know is sadistic almost Mm -hmm. Uh, because i i didn't see a personally i didn't see any like point of him you know maybe it's just for style to leave a bloody lantern at the scene of the crime i don't know but uh, it's certainly gleeful as uh, the choice there well, you know what's interesting? If I remember correctly, that's the killing that ultimately becomes his undoing in the yeah, end. Yeah, it's the Toa Yoyudo character or whatever uh, right. whatever the character's name is. Indeed, it's the, it's the one they really, they really want to solve, uh, the powers that be, that murder. And I, and I mentioned this to you, that um, in some ways this film really remind me of Goodfellas, mm-hmm. you know, the Martin Scorsese film. And it's actually kind of similar because... You know, now that I'm putting it um, together in my head, you know, you have Joe Pesci's character, um, who's uh, Tommy, if I remember his uh, his character's name. You know, he's acting on very similar impulses as Okada Izo is in in Hitokiri, because you know they're both seen as these sort of characters with massive inferior complexes, who are basically trying to kill their way to the top you know in the case of tommy it's you know he wants to be a made man right in the case of okarizo he wants to i think he wanted to marry the princess or something like that i can't remember yeah 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 it's that other like kill his way <laughs> kill his uh, himself to uh, to like uh climb the romance ladder as well like he's 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 quite um you know he's got a filter before his eyes certainly Right. He really thinks that, you know, his actions will be, you know, honored and rewarded, you know, that kind of thing. Where, where, like I said, it's actually opposite of the case. You know, now again, that I'm putting it together in my head, you know, it's like Goodfellas, Tommy's character ends up killing Billy Bats, right? 
in a very similar manner, actually. You know, right? He takes a pan and stabs him in the neck. Well, well, well. They first beat him up in the bar, and then, uh, then right, right, there's right. the whole trunk, uh, trunk thing as well, because he's still alive. <laughs> right. You know, and that actually end, ends up being Tommy's undoing in the very end, right? Yeah, yeah. There's very much so. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I, now it makes me even wonder if Scorsese hey, hey, do, do, do a video essay, dude, and like compare yeah, know, shot, know, compare I shots know. and shit. Right. I know exactly. I gotta do this, man. For someone tra- trademarks this, uh, probably someone's written on this before. I'm sure. But uh, it's just kind of interesting how there's parallels. And I wonder if Scorsese possibly... Now, this is, again, Goodfellas is something that happened in real life. This is something that happened, you know, 30 years ago or whatnot. That's kind of how it happened. But I kind of wonder if Scorsese, you know, was trying to parallel that a little bit. Who, with who knows? He's got his uh, cinematic eyes on and he's always yeah. had, had them. So, I mean... Uh, yeah, I know. He, and he loves Asian cinema. Do you ever have any any problems cinematically following characters that are so incredibly flawed? Could, could that be a red flag for you? As long as it's like a compelling character journey and a story, it doesn't really matter if they're sympathetic or not sympathetic. Because sometimes you read reviews that really uh, give, give the movie a complete like pause because we have no sympathetic characters here. What's the point? I don't really have a problem with any sort of character because in the end it's still a story, you know? There's a lot of... Um topics now about you know films or filmmakers you know being sexist because of how they write characters or how they portray characters i'm not really so concerned about that i'm really more concerned about what they're doing in real life i can't think of a good example right now of oh lars von trier is a good example in a lot of his films you know he portrays you know women basically getting you know, beaten down in all manners and senses. Yeah, yeah, it's a it, it, it it's a debate, all right. I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, his movies, but uh, I know that debate is uh, is out there, and uh, I think Loss is uh, is uh, funny in his own head, but his his humor is not for the world. Sometimes, you know, I I think I understand Hitler. I think I understand Hitler. <laughs> right. Like, damn right. it, damn it, Loss. Like, shut up. <laughs> I'm really more concerned about what that person's like in real life. I mean, you know, yeah, like you said, right now, you know, it's like, sh- shut up, please. Is that something he's really believing or is it just something he's trying to evoke? He's trying to be provocative, you know? You know? Who knows? You know, we'd have to know the person in real life. And, you know, I think a lot of times people, and this might be more of the um, Asian person coming out at me, but uh, people confuse, you know, the public face and the private face a little bit, you know? Well, I think it's a glo- glo- global thing, yeah. Do you think uh, Gorsha is beginning to, like, shape his... Um take on take on characters a little bit more throughout this movie because the other movies you you think i think you discussed it they were more genre content and tropes rather than representing character journeys if you will is there any progress in terms of characters present uh, present here in your eyes yeah i think that's part of the reason why this film is so well liked outside of japan at the very least i'm not too sure what its status is in um in gosha's filmography in japan but um, I think it's because people react to the characters being more like real life people, in which case they actually were real life people. Um, but, you know, even as characters, they do evolve to a degree, you know, whereas, you know, the films that we've seen up to now, they're just sort of comic book characters in a way. Yeah, I think I could see that, uh, you know, Gosha, uh, you know, at the very least is taking more thought into, you know, developing the character. Not to say that he didn't other stuff, but you know, I think more so he saw some sort of thing that he liked in this script or whatever, or some way of portraying the characters um, that he wanted to get across that um, really drives the film. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting, actually. Um, I remember uh, when you posted on the Facebook page that we uh, 
were doing this uh, series, uh, someone commented, they said, oh, I like Gosha's films when they're actually doing something. <laughs> or he said something like, I love the sword fights, but uh, the in-between kind of, eh, you know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the, the films that we've seen up to Tokiri were kind of like that. you know. Totally, where, totally. They were more like a slice of, uh, like, slice of genre content in and out cinema in terms of like like watch it and then it's out of your life kind of uh kenneth a slice of genre content pun intended i know my shit anyway so yeah i do see that uh this this film is a lot more of a character piece rather than just you know a genre piece so i, I think and again i think that's why people appreciate it so much i i, I really like even um it sounds like too much expository symbolism to have the character of Sakamoto, which is Iso's friend, you know, and his counterpoint, the one who sees who he's been, what he's being treated like. But he tells him the story of the dog and the hunter, and uh, but it doesn't feel like too expository symbolism because the story is engaging and the character is engaging and the cinema is engaging. I mean, it's a visual treat too. So I mean, it's not necessarily clever. But uh, it it's it certainly doesn't disrupt anything that they continue to go with you know you're his dog you're his dog you're his dog and all of that. But it it also helps to have Tatsuya Nakirai as the uh, you know at the top in the chain so to say and uh, being so ruthless but a calm leader really enjoying the puppetry that he can you know conduct here. That's why I've become a fan already two movies in that. Uh, I like when actors do it, do something interesting, and sometimes they do great interesting things by doing ex- extremely little. Almost, it's it's a lot in his eyes, rather than great outbursts. But it's just uh, it's one of those actors that there's bound to be something interesting going on there, acting choice wise, and it certainly is. And uh, that character is felt, the Takechi character is felt, and uh, you you know his you know he's he's easy to control, yes. But you know he's uh, still enjoying the paths he can steer him towards, like with ease as well. It's like you know he's dangling the bone in front of him, and uh, right. he's uh, he's uh, gonna follow each and every move there. And that that's a that's a nice little thread, a little uh, beating pulse of the movie to have there as well. That uh, this spiral isn't going upwards, but it's still exciting cinematically to follow for two hours. This is a movie that definitely warrants. Well, holy heck, it's even uh, two hours and twenty minutes. And I think it it totally earns uh, that. It fills it uh, sort of suitably and logically. I didn't uh, find myself thinking there's slow spots and uh, filler or anything like that. Or, or what do you think, uh, you know, spontaneously speaking of running time alone? Yeah, I think it was uh, about the proper length. You know, there was a, maybe a couple times that there was a little dragging going on. Like, like Actually, at the beginning, I was a little confused as to what was going on. But then I sort of caught on after a while, right? It won't kind of, it won't hit you with uh, like a ton of bricks like initially, but once you settle in and let it wash over you, it's uh, you know the attention to telling the story in a clear manner is definitely there in my opinion. I really have this really bad habit when I watch films is that you know because because I was an English major, literature major, that's really gotten me far in life, right? So, um, <laughs> you know, I kind of always have this. I'm always dead set on metaphor when I first start anything. You know, even like when I start reading something, you know, it's like metaphor, metaphor, metaphor. And it, it, sometimes it can really ruin my concentration as to what's happening, you know, in the narrative because I'm just looking for too much to, to happen. Just a bad habit. Just want to say that because, you know, that's what kind of screwed me up at the beginning of the film because I'm like, okay, I know that he's poor. I'm like, 
what's happening here you know and i'm you know i'm trying to draw these connections together because you know i'm just working too hard to make connections when i should just be watching the film and enjoy yeah some, sometimes you do indeed need to let it just wash over you sometimes it's yeah. just a story yeah but uh exactly. but yeah yeah it, it does hold symbolism of course uh but uh sometimes with movies we we, we discussed this um me and Phil G from Podcast on Fire when we talked of the Infernal Affairs movies, the Hong Kong movies, that they have this um, underlying theme of continuous hell and there, there's a, some Buddhism going on there. But it's there if you want it. Uh, and the movies, they, they don't shove it down your throat. They have a little thing at the beginning and then a little bit of thing at the end and in the middle, so to say, the movie. It's, it's a straight story, you know, a straight... That's kind of interesting that you mentioned that because uh, I guess similarly with Thor, uh, with uh, Sword of the Beast, you know, I was also watching the film sort of like, you know, at the beginning sort of steeped in, you know, I'm trying to look for some kind of metaphor here. Just watching, I'm like, okay, well, it's just going to be a regular story or whatever. And then, then when you hit that point, that sort of uh, that third act of the film, then you understand, you know, what the metaphor is like. You know, the, it's this area that, that they're in is kind of like this living hell sort of, you know, it's turning them all into beasts, so to speak. But like you said, it just sort of reveals itself rather than, you know, you having to dig for it. And that's just, again, just a bad habit of mine as a as a film goer, I think. You know, sometimes I think I'm not smart enough to watch certain movies. I kind of fear going into certain movies. Like, I, I got to understand it like everybody else does. And then at, at the end of the day, it's not hard to get into so, so sometimes i think i like rev myself up and like build itself up to be difficult and i gotta sit there watch the screen without blinking just to make sure i get it all and, and at the end of the day it's it's uh you know you you have to trust the filmmaker um and uh, and things like that of course you're disappointed sometimes but uh but speaking of gosha i think one of the most vivid memories of the film it's towards the end but i won't spoil it there's a very long scene with him and the it's not the sakamoto character it's another young man in the clan the one who's not very prone to violence he's very young he looks kind of fearful but he's um he's the one who brings the poison to uh to katsu's character and uh, and they have a very long he's not drunk drunk but it, he's clearly just uh he's worn down by that point uh, katsu's character and there's some really terrific just I mean, uninterrupted acting going on here in terms of uh, Gosha isn't cutting back and forth as such. And uh, as a fan of actors acting, I love when something can just sit there and be. You know, you don't need to cut it up into tons of coverage from the ceiling, from the floor, from the left, from the right. And um, by that point, you know, he's sort of screwed and uh, he's uh, fallen from grace by going against the clan you know his only you know success path in life would be that you know violence and uh, being manipulated even though he doesn't realize it so it's that part of the film where he is uh, on a downward slide and it's gonna get gonna get worse of course as we see by the end but uh, i i I think that's where gosha is impressing me the most as a filmmaker i'll see in the development is his ability to let actors just carry the frame without uh, without interrupting just set the damn camera and uh, and let the you know your strong storytelling skills uh, take over and those storytelling skills can be done uninterrupted that scene to me was really sad and i'm not saying sad because you know we're thinking you know the character is going to die but what was really sad was you know with all the ryoma sakamoto character all the warnings that he got from him and you know all that he had witnessed from from Nakarai's character and you know everything that he knew about the situation 
it still came down to him essentially getting assassinated before he could really turn the corner and realize that, hey, I'm, I'm really getting screwed over. He does at one point quit and he goes off on his own and then realizes that he has to come back. But even then, you know, he, he comes back. He realizes he can't make it on his own. He can't be a freelancer because, you know, at that point he's kind of damaged goods. and Yeah, they don't pay them clearly or he just wastes his money because they're, they're like uh, the only thing he has to his name is a little bit of fame at that point rather than a stash of money. Well, it's not even fame. It's infamy, you yeah. know, because they know that, well, one thing they know is that he's supposed to be in this clan and that, you know, he's broken away. You know, who's to say that he's not going to do this again, right? I mean, why would you want to deal with that situation when you can just go with what you have, so to speak? You know, even as good of a character that, uh, even as good of a, excuse me, assassinate, assassin that he is, is it worth that risk to have him in the clan? And, you know, what about, you know, the um, Nakadai's character, you know, the, the uh, Han Peta character, you know? I mean, if I were to take him into my clan, what would that character think, you know? You got one of my guys, you know? That might start a big clan war. That's why, you know, that, that, that last scene, that scene, though, the poisoning scene is very uh, sad because it, it really does take that to happen to him to realize that he's got to really, you know, there's only him at that point is, is what, you know, is what I can imagine him thinking, you know. And, and we've talked about like a big, loud, aggressive actor. And here's the scene where he totally knows how to dial it, uh, dial it down, you know. Yeah, he just becomes a baby at that point. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I think that that's uh, uh, one of my strongest memories uh, because it's just something I still love, um, actors acting. I think that's kind of like a necessary move for that character because at the point where he's at where you know he has been so deceived all of his, not all of his life, but that period of his life and how much he's deceived himself you yeah. know, because... You know, he believes that, you know, I'm going to go up in the ranks just because I can, I know how to kill people. At that point, the only way for that character to reform is to really break him down, break down every belief, every, you know, in, in the case of, you know, him being poisoned, break him down physically to really understand that, hey, you know, you were deceived, you know, you were just a puppet. And not only were you a puppet of this man, you know, uh, Han Peta, you were a puppet of your own stupid beliefs, you know, that you could somehow become great because you know how to kill people. What's great about that? It's very frail. It seems like the, this whole world, really, um, for certain characters. Like, the, as I said, there's only, there seems to be only two choices here. And, um, yeah. and uh, you know, living a violent, <laughs> a violent free life sure. and, uh, and in squalor yeah. uh, and this kind of life, which is... And in fact, the... Um... The female character that he shacks up with, who's a you know, who's a, essentially a prostitute, she realizes that. She realizes that before he does that. Hey, we're just trapped in this world. We're trapped by money. You know, I owe. Well, I feel it was like thirty ryo, which was like a lot back in the day. That's mm-hmm. like probably around like three hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Maybe it was less than that. I don't know. But she understands that she's trapped, and the only way that you can be free is to sort of is to destroy all your notions about the world and just you know move on and the only way that he ends up being able to do that you know which is of course you know the final act of the film is that you know he has to end up sacrificing himself and 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 i think it's the most we've taken away from gosha's movies in in this regard it's the it's the most like character and impact and 
you know, thematic impact, I suppose, but the re- story impact, really. And, and I think that's why Hitokiri is, you know, still remains. Uh, uh, it left an impression on me back then and still does, because you can take away much uh, what you just said from it. Uh, it's not this sort of, again, like simple basic slice and then you're out of there. It's it has uh, it, you know it has a little bit more impact than that and uh, I I don't I didn't emphasize it enough I think but you know without spoiling you know exactly what happens in the last scene but the technically a new Japanese cinema where they they could bring it but in terms of how the various bloody violence is conveyed is I think marvelous on a technical technical level uh, especially the very last scene is uh, convincing as you know the makeup that is required uh, the neck makeup before he's pierced and all of that it, it's very convincing and obviously it, it's a lot has to do with Katsu's reaction to it all but uh, you know if there was um, any uh, like, like a good showcase for you know terrific <laughs> distressing uh, gory violence in Japanese movies uh, this is uh, this is a good example and a nice counterpoint to the fun like fountains of uh, a lone wolf and cub uh, movie which is you know i never reacted to oh my god i'm not gonna lose sleep it's so disgusting no it was just all fun just all fun like and uh so so uh, the special effects team on on this in particular whether gosha involved himself greatly into like really hands-on or whatever i don't know but um uh, it certainly uh it certainly comes off as terrific still in uh, in this day and age, I think. I mean, even that scene in the rain, that uh, the, the initial scenes, they, they, there's a ton of blood in there, but it looks like small particles because uh, it's all it's all raining. You know what I mean? Like, they, they probably have a great amount of fake blood going on there, uh, you know, through the tube and all of that, but it's all lost in the rain, which makes it all impactful, and that first opponent that he watches you know struggle they don't take him down easily either you know it's <laughs> that's where, where the draining note <laughs> came from you know, from uh, from my end uh, so yeah I, I don't really have any other notes i think it's his finest work so far but so but uh, we, we got some more to cover so we'll, we'll see yeah we've only gone through what not even like a third of his filmography but you know there's plenty of other stuff to to look at in and other genres too like uh samurai wasn't his thing for 30 years or whatever no 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 Right, exactly. Yeah, he has some Yakuza films. He has some dramas in there. There's, there's a pretty decent amount of variety in his uh, filmography. Uh, so, yep, yeah, I'll, I'll conclude my notes uh, there. Uh, do you want to mention anything else? There's an element in his films that um, that is it's something that's uh, good to touch on. Is uh, you know we talked about the thematic similarities of uh, at the very least these three films and probably to some degree uh, Three Outlaw Samurai. And uh, there's something. Um, that I picked up on um, from um, having studied Japanese and whatever Japanese narrative and film and whatnot is uh, this not only has to do with um, Gosha's films, I should say, this is more of a trope that, you know, spans across all different kinds of uh, media uh, that's uh, narratively related. But, but uh, these films in, in particular that we uh, looked at, in this episode really hammered down, you know, that this is something that Golsha is really going for in, in the thematic sense is um, there's these two um, social constructs in uh, Japanese. Uh, one is called a uh, giri and the other one is called ninjo. And usually they fall together as being um, a narrative trope. So a lot of times you'll see not one or the other, but both of them mentioned together as giri ninjo. And the reason is, is because, 
in some ways, uh, in Japanese narrative, they're seen as a dichotomy, which is a giri. Giri essentially means uh, obligation. Touches on social obligation, but also touches on national obligation. Your obligation to the state, as well as obligation to human beings and to the social system. And then Ninjo refers to um, hum- your human feelings, your compassion. In some ways, it can also refer to like human, like romance, social feelings towards people. And the reason why I say that they can be seen as very dichotomous is because, um, you know, one is that Japanese characters, I should just say Japanese people in general, especially back in the, the feudal era, had, and especially in the case of samurai, had this great obligation to their lords. You know, I mean, we saw this in all three films, right? In Tokiri, we saw that in with uh, Shintaro, uh, Shintaro Katsu's character, his loyalty to uh, Tatsuya Nakadai's character. In the other two films, we also see, you know, there is some loyalty between the, the lesser samurai and the greater ones. You know, a lot of Westerners might say, well, obligation is something that, you know, is common among all humans. But I think that to the degree that it occurs in, you know, the Japanese narrative is very different because I think that a lot of people, Westerners, who look at samurai characters, their sort of devotion to the lords, you know, a lot of us think kind of instinctually, I would never do that. It's like, you know, screw that. I mean, like, I'm sure you've watched already a few of these films where you're thinking, why is he doing that? That's, (laughs) that's, you know, completely against, you know, what I would do or my morals or, you know, my social or national um, ethics, right? That's something that when paired with human compassion is very interesting mix because for example you know we do have you know let's take uh, Hitokiri as uh, Hitokiri as an example because you know it's it's the main film this episode you know again we do have um, Shintaro Katsu's devotion to Tatsuya Nakadai and we kind of think well can't he see that he's being manipulated that he's he's the dog I mean you know like you said there's that one scene where you know Ryoma Sakamoto his character basically tells him straight out, hey, you're a dog. You're in your, you know, Hanpechi's dog, you know. But still Shintaro Katsu still follows along. It's not just a matter of, you know, free will. It's this social construct that I am bound by duty to this person. And that's in conflict with the, the ninjo side of things, which is, you know, his feelings towards his good friend Ryoma Sakamoto, right? Because he understands what Sakamoto's saying but he still follows along with his devotion, you know? So that's kind of an interesting mix of, of different, you know, social elements that we're going to see probably in other films. Well, you see in all, a lot of Japanese film, but a lot of other uh, Gosha's films as well as, you know, other directors that we're going to explore. So, so you might remember in the first episode, I mentioned a scene that I really loved in which there's one character who's played by the actor, Isamu uh, Nagato. He's, he's kind of the, the chubbier guy. Mm-hmm. The chubby guy is really like a super fighter. So at one point, he has to basically choose between going to save his friends, the other two samurai in essence, or being able to escape with his girlfriend, fiance, wife. That is a moment right there of that giddy and ninjo in effect. 
you know, as we move on, I think that we can add this maybe to one of those, you know, Gosha themes that we've talked about, you know, with, you know, the violence, the grittiness, but also keep in mind that there's this, you know, this sort of social element coming in effect with a lot of these characters of whether they should follow their heart or their head. It's an underlying, uh, underlying thing that uh, that uh, definitely elevates and creates understanding, and uh, we'll also see if uh, the blood continues to go spurt spurt as we go through the movies or not. <laughs> there's there's giddy ninja and spurt spurt. Yes, those are two elements we have to think about. Yeah, there's going to be a pop quiz tomorrow, by the way. Kids, so <laughs> Absolutely. Make sure you show- Absolutely, I will. Uh, all righty, let's do the availability then. It's curiously absent. Strangely enough, it might have had a Japanese DVD once, but I, I, I couldn't find a listing for it. Yeah, I, I looked too. It's only been on VHS, and I don't know why. It's not comparable quality-wise, but even uh, Shintaro Katsu's Hans of Eraser trilogy is like curiously absent from uh, from Japanese home video. That uh, you know, one problem is Japanese film distributors are really not good at the home market. Well, it might be the case that. I, I mean, there's film fans in Japan. I mean, sure. I mean, you know, maybe not to the the to the you know psychotic degree as um, as there are in other countries, possibly. But you know, and they also have film cable channels and whatnot. But I don't know why the the studios have never really been that good with um, putting out home releases. And when they do, they're really expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, DVDs tend to run sometimes in the you know U.S. dollars, forty, fifty dollars, that kind of seventy. Even right. for like yeah. a basic edition, exactly crazy. But uh, and there's no current Western edition either with English subtitles for for Hitokiri. However, there is a two disc special edition from the French label Wildside available. And while it isn't English subtitled, uh, if you know your way around the internet, you you can find English fan subtitles made available yeah. for free to you, so you can burn that onto a disc and to put your purchase uh, <laughs> uh, to, to like combine with your purchase. That that's what I. Not that I'm trying to make myself sound great or anything, but I really wanted to own the film. And I uh, and the edition is still available for a very reasonable price. And to boot, if you understand uh, Japanese, like you obviously don't need the subtitles, but they also did fairly extensive documentaries on presumably Gosha and his career uh, on the second disc of that French Wildside DVD edition. So um, so if you can understand uh, Japanese uh, or read French, because they presumably subtitled that stuff, then uh, that's a mighty fine special edition probably uh, sitting there for you. So I, I do recommend uh, trying to find out. It's easily available on the French Amazon. And uh, Yeah, I've been trying to get through that documentary, and I'll, I'll see if I can get anything from it that I can add to the uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, when I first saw Hitokira, it was on a presumably a widescreen VHS rip with English subtitles. It might have been unofficially like fan subtitled, but the style of the subtitles, if my memory is correct, reminded me of what Animego would do, you know, with the different colors and, uh, you know, a top row of subtitles sometimes explaining signs or whatever. And same for Hands of Eraser. Originally, I saw those on on VHS widescreen, but with good English subtitles like that. So there might have been a US VHS or maybe even Laserdisc of Hitokiri, but uh, or it was fan subtitled uh, sometime in the eighties and nineties. I've never heard of it. It could have been a festival print too. But but, but yeah, it was uh, available uh, in um, in some shape or form before. And Animego did a, a little bit of a uh, samurai 
cinema line. They still do. They have a couple of DVDs and even one for a Gosha movie, Secret of the Urn, I think still lies with Animago. Yeah, which is a really entertaining film, by the way. Cool, cool. Uh, right on. So ne- next time we, we continue uh, plotting this series, but uh, wh- while I aim for five parts, uh, because we can't do this forever, we'll see what feels natural uh, for us as we go into planning mode again. Uh, we're going to obviously do some quick takes, but uh, we we might have to skip some stuff but we, because we need to hit to complete the series kind of key eras and uh you know movies genres and, uh, and genres indeed so it's the, the the samurai stuff for this era is obviously not something well i don't know if he ever did uh, he did at least one samurai movie again but that was like end of 70s or something like that so but regardless if we return to that genre or not uh, we'll see but i want to keep it moving forward and try to uh, hit some other gosha type of uh, genre content and uh, style and themes and what have you so uh, and uh, it, it's funny though I, I don't know if uh, there's a logical explanation for this but on the Hulu side on the Hulu Plus uh, site they have an, a few additional Gosha movies that are not on disc either DVD or Blu-ray and I don't know if that's a very sound decision based on the fact we have it we don't have the budget for a disc release put it on Hulu you know, if it's a sound decision based on that, or so we're not going to get a disc release ever of some movies, or if it's a sign of it's coming. But we do we do streaming it for now. So well, Criterion, you know, they're always pretty measured with how they release their films. So my guess is they probably purchase a lot of rights, and they just sort of, to me, it seems like they use Hulu to sort of dump some things on there just so people have some access to it. Yeah, and then you know maybe later on they'll have like an Eclipse box set. Yeah, which is a sound decision, like rather than sit on it if they like like pre- present it to, you know, because Hulu is not a small small service or anything. It's not a specialized service for for Criterion only or whatever. So I, I think it's a sound decision to have a couple of them, uh, a couple of additional ones out there. Let's let's admit it. If you have Hulu, most likely you got it because of Criterion. If you're a film fan, you know. <laughs> I, I only I only have it for Kitchen Nightmares, essentially. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was on crap TV, and I'm gonna pay for it too. No, no, but now, but you're right. That that, that selection is marvelous, and uh, Sword of the Beast is clearly a little bit better than the DVD version. It, yeah, maybe 720p if we want to be technical. Maybe it, it to my eyes it looked a little bit sharper than the DVD. The DVD still looked okay, to be honest. Yeah, the DVD is. A dark so if you search hulu you're going to find at least uh, six or seven gosha movies uh, versus two on disc i think yeah so good 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 well uh, we'll conclude this uh, this uh, packed up episode on gosha then and this is or was japan on fire on the podcast on fire network a uh, bunch of shows on there including uh, this one on japanese cinema where we got ones on hong kong cinema in Korean cinema and etc etc as well as bonus episodes uh, up there if you have any questions or feedback our email is podcastonfire at googlemail.com our social media uh, presence can be reached through the buttons at the top of our webpage such as our Facebook and Twitter as well as our iTunes and Stitcher Stitcher feeds and presences are available in an easy manner too and I write about mainly Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies over at sogoodreviews.com and my video hub is sleazykvideo.com and my Twitter uh, handle is at so good reviews you get the final uh, final plug my friend so uh, v cinema where is it on the web and what do you do over there well our blog is located on at uh, v cinema show.com that's s-h-o-w uh we're also on twitter at uh, at v cinema show and then also on facebook as 
V Cinema. Just search for us. I think we're we used to be like one of three V Cinemas, but I think two of them dropped off somehow. So I'm not too sure. <laughs> they dropped off in quotation marks in mysterious fashion. <laughs> well, there was a little, a little of me doing a little Okada Izo type of action on those uh, sites. I'm sure. I am Coffin John. I am Coffin John. And you keep running it, <laughs> running, running around, slashing them up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's uh, see you for next episode. Uh, whatever content may be, we'll announce it a little bit uh, ahead of time. So uh, in the meantime, so I've been Kenny B, and with me was Coffin John. So say goodbye, buddy. Goodbye, bye. bye.